Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. You're all excited. You're all warmed up. So let us hear the word of God. All right. We're reading from John 2, 1 through 11. I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes and imagine the scene because it's pretty descriptive. It's at the beginning of Jesus' uh, ministry. And it's a little unexpected. Here we go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Remain standing as I say a word of prayer to prepare our hearts for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May we take this time just to prepare ourselves to hear your word and to learn what you have to teach us this morning. May you help us to see with our eyes what you want us to see. May you help our ears hear what you want us to hear. Will you help our minds to know what you want us to know, but most importantly, make our hearts feel what you want us to feel. And we thank this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this time of year is an exciting time of year for many people. It's called college draft time, right? And I'm not talking about NFL draft. It's the day that students, high school students, primarily seniors, are choosing which college they're going to go to in the next four years. And it can be a very exciting one. It's one that's actually full of anxiety for some. And also, unfortunately, it can be a time of disappointment and even a time of shame and embarrassment because whatever college one chooses to go to or was unable to get into, we are trying to meet other people's expectations. And a lot of times, those other people are our parents. Now, how many of you have ever heard parents comparing their children? Right? You've you've probably heard it, and I have to admit, I've probably been guilty of doing it myself. But it's something that happens a lot. And actually, in Asian families, it happens even more so, where parents are comparing one to another. And and when this happens, 
it can leave a lot of deep scarring in each one of us that have ever experienced this in a negative way. And if you don't understand what this means, I'm going to show a video that kind of pokes fun at it a little bit. So why don't we see this video? Thank you so much for letting Dan work on the project with Annie La. Your son's so smart. He will help Annie do a good job. Ayah, no, 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 no. Annie is so smart. She will do better than Dan. Ayah, not so smart on her last math test. Mystery question. But mom, I still got an A in the bonus question. BJ, bonus question, not real test. Just to make you feel better about getting real test wrong. Ayah, Annie still got an A, still good. Last week, Dan got a... Mom, that was a pop quiz. We're not even supposed to know the material. The teacher just wanted to see what we needed to know. So many excuses. You should still get an A, huh? Study extra this week. Uh, Mom, can we go work on our project now? Ayah, go, go. Ayah, you're so lucky to have any. Girls are so obedient. Ayah, this one not even girl. She wants to play sports. I tell her, sport for boys. She no listen. She played basketball. Ah, and the coach tell me she best one on the team. She has winning shot at state championships. But so unladylike. Ayah, not as bad as Dad. He's so lazy with the schoolwork. I have to tell him to do the homework every day. But with the music, huh? He plays the piano all the time. I cannot tell him to stop. And he wants to play other instruments too. His music teacher said he's the most talented student he had for 35 years. And uh, he said he can play in the Carnegie Hall too. Ayah. What are you doing? Um, I forgot something. Am I really that good? No! No focus, huh? So forgetful! How can you be a good musician? Don't get a big head! See? Only cares about what he likes. Need to focus on study. That's like Annie and her book. Read, read, read. Always writing on the computer. A teacher tell me she read at college level. Huh? She wrote paper for school, won a award, and got published in book. She said she want to major in English in college. What kind of job can you get in an English major? Ah, Dan is always on the computer. I tell him not to play so many games. So he makes his own game, huh? He sold it on the internet. It's so popular. He got published in this magazine. Ayah, call him the young entrepreneur. And he brought me this watch for my birthday. Ayah, I tell him that owning his own business is too risky. Better get a good job and be a doctor. The kids are not serious about college. I tell Annie to do SAT drill every weekend. She got perfect score on verbal SAT. I tell her she need to work on the math. Did you hear that Mrs. Lin's daughter got 2400 on her SAT? <gasps> perfect score on the first try. And she got to Harvard. Early decision. And 25 scholarship. <gasps> Pay for the whole thing. Annie, come, 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 Dan! Kids, from now on, you have to take college much more seriously. Uh, you have to practice writing the practice essay now. From now on, we do SAT tests every day together. But, Mom... We're 10! So that video kind of gives you a little bit of a fun look at poking fun at, at, at Asian people who do that. But, you know, truth be told, we do come from a culture that is shame-based, unfortunately, where a lot of the things that we do is motivated by not experiencing shame or, or embarrassment. And a lot of times, sometimes uh, people of influence in our lives try to use shame or embarrassment to get us to achieve things. But sadly, those kinds of behaviors do leave scarring in, 
in, in us that can last a long time. And unfortunately, you know, comparing us as children sadly goes on in life where we begin to think my career is not as good as that other person or my house is not as big as that other person or the car I drive isn't as nice as that other person. And unfortunately, this is all packaged in the American dream. And do you think God has something to say about that? Does he understand that, that people can be hurt, can suffer from shame and embarrassment? I think so. I think God understands that, that a lot of us are in bondage over that. And actually, the scripture text that we, we heard this morning actually addresses that. That there is something shameful and embarrassing that's going to happen. And, and Jesus understands that. And he knows that. And he does something about that. In this text, we are learning about Jesus. And the Gospel of John is all about Jesus. And Jesus came to earth with a mission. And that mission was to, part of his mission is to make disciples. And then those disciples were going to make even more disciples. And if we are people who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, then we would understand that mission and would want to partner with him. And if we want to be just like Jesus and the early disciples, then we would be ones who want to make disciples ourselves. And if we're going to do that, it would be wise, it would be very smart to invite Jesus to come along with us too. And that's why I call my message this morning, inviting Jesus to the party. So whenever we do anything in the world, and if we think we want to do it in the name of Jesus, it would be wise to invite Jesus to come along, to come along and be part of our party. When we invite Jesus to the party, there is only good things that can happen. And one of the things that is available to us when Jesus is in the house, when he's at the party, is that we can bring problems to him. If there are any challenges and obstacles that come along, we can invite him to the party and present to him those problems. From the story of at the wedding of Cana, in verse 3 it says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Right off the bat, there's a problem. And... Jesus' mother brings this problem up to the right person who can do something about it. She says to Jesus, there is no more wine. Now, why is this a, a big deal? Why would having no more wine be a problem? Well, in that early biblical culture in the Middle Eastern culture, which is very Asian in many uh, respects, food and drink is the responsibility of the host. And if you ever run out of those two things, it would be very embarrassing. It would be shameful. Now, how many of you can identify with that? I can. Uh, almost 30 years ago, Terry and I got married. And I think I have a picture at our wedding banquet. We had about over 550 guests. So we had a lot of people. And... Uh, so that means I and Terry would have to provide the food and drink for all of our guests. And when 
when that, there are that many people, it's very hard sometimes to predict who's going to show up. And I don't know if your family's like that. My family has this open invitation to all of our relatives and friends to come. And so RSVP doesn't work very good in Chinese culture. And especially when you have to invite the family association, they can bring anybody. So I had to build into our, our, our table settings uh, three extra tables just to make sure there was no problem having the embarrassment and awkwardness of trying to find to sit a seat for somebody who shows up that we did not anticipate. So there was actually a cushion there. And, and this was really important because those tables really actually got filled up. And that happens. So I can identify with that, that, that value that you, to be hospitable, that you would have to make sure you had enough food or drink available. Because if you ran short, it would be very embarrassing. And that was the case here at that wedding of Cana, that, that, that the bride and, and, and the bridegroom were, ran out of wine. And some commentators make a joke out of this, is that Jesus came. It says the scripture said that Jesus was invited, and he brought his disciples. So, so some say that the, the bride and the bridegroom didn't expect Jesus to bring his disciples. And those disciples were very thirsty fishermen, so that they actually caused a shortage of wine. So it was a little embarrassing there that that happened. But that was the problem. And, and when we see that the interaction between Mary and Jesus here, it's kind of interesting to note how Mary behaves. Because Mary is the wise one here, and she sees a problem, and she brings it to the person who, who can do something about it, and that's her son, Jesus. But this, the, the, the behavior or attitude that she has is a contrast to the last time we saw Mary. You know, uh, the scriptures are very short. And actually, is very scarce of what happens after Jesus' birth. Not much about his young development years as a, as a boy. We kind of jump from his birth and maybe as an early infant now to when he's about 30 years old. So there's been 30 years that have transpired. But here is it in this story, in the scriptures here, we see Mary has matured. Because when we first was exposed to her, she was a young teen. She was anxious. She was fearful. Remember, the angel came and said, you will have uh, God's son. And she was afraid. And the angel said, do not fear. But now she's a woman. She's a mother. And here you see a different attitude from her. There's no fear. There's no panic. She goes to her son and says, there's a problem. We need more wine. And, and, and it's kind of interesting here that she does this in a way that's very confident. And also she does it in a way that demonstrates a lot of trust. Because she doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She just brings the problem to him and allows Jesus to do whatever he wants to do. He, she just says, she doesn't say make more wine, get more wine. She just says, we got a problem. We don't have any. That's a, something for us to note. If we want to be better followers of Jesus, to grow in our spiritual walk, just as Mary demonstrates, when there's a problem, stop doing it on your own. 
Stop doing it on your own tactics. Just present them to Jesus, and he will take care of them. Remember, your will, not my will. And so Mary demonstrates a very mature attitude when there's a problem. Bring it to Jesus, but don't tell him what to do and when to do it. And if you are currently going through difficulties and facing a daunting problem, this is a good lesson to remember. And from that, you can see also from these scriptures how Jesus will respond. Now, it's interesting that in verse 4 it says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now, at first glance, you would think that's kind of an odd response, right? This is Jesus' mother, and he doesn't call her mother. He calls her woman. Now, I had to do a little research here. When he calls her woman, he's not actually being disrespectful. It's actually a term of respect. It's similar to when Adam called Eve woman. So it's not derogatory in any nature. It's actually an honorable thing to be called a woman. But here, Jesus is actually taking a moment to disciple his mom. It's a teaching lesson. Jesus, you have to remember, he's, uh, if you look at the scripture, the stories right before, he had just done some amazing ministry. He's actually had to do some cold calling, right? If you're salespeople, he had to go to four to five, six men and say, come and see, follow me. That's all he did. And then these men got up, left their homes, their families, their professions, and went to follow him. So that's a, essentially a cold call, a really hard thing to do. Jesus did it, and people came following. So his, his movement, his radical movement is beginning. So he's probably on a high, and, and he's pretty, feeling really good. And then this story comes out at the wedding at Cana. So, so he's invited, Jesus is invited to this wedding. He's probably feeling, we can surmise, man, I just did some hard ministry. I just want to kind of chill out here, just kind of stay in the background, just enjoy some company, some food and, and drink. But my mother comes up to me and says, there's a problem. It's like, you know, you go home, it's a hard day's work, and then your wife says, the toilet's clogged up. Can you go fix it? It's kind of a big letdown from some great things you did at work, and then you got to go do something menial. And essentially, you know, Mary, when she's asking Jesus to do this, it's not an easy task. Because essentially, there's no convenience store nearby where he can go and get cases of wine. She's essentially asking him to do a miracle, to, to, to create wine. So Jesus here is taking this moment to, to disciple his mother to, to, at the beginning of his ministry. Because this is essentially the first miracle that Jesus chooses to perform. He tells his mother, instead of calling her mother, he says, woman. And this is important to note that essentially Jesus is making a statement now of the hierarchy of relationships. That he comes now not as her son, but he comes as the son of the Heavenly Father. And he says, I am no longer now just your son, but I am now your Lord 
And so he calls her woman. Why do you bother me with this? It is not my time. So Jesus essentially knowing that his mother is asking him to do a miracle. If he does a miracle, do you think that's going to go under the radar? Not really. It's going to actually expose him. Because he doesn't want to do that yet. He's trying to be lay low, you know. He's trying to develop his, 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 his nascent um, revolution, his, his, his movement. And to do spectacular things is going to attract a lot of attention. Some good, some bad. But whatever happens, and we know that Jesus doesn't do anything that the Heavenly Father doesn't want him to do, he performs this miracle. That as soon as he says this word to establish this hierarchy now that I'm no longer your son, I am now the son of God. Somehow he goes ahead and does the miracle. So we can assume that God, the Heavenly Father, may have sent him a little message in his ear. Jesus, your mother's, you know, to honor her, go ahead and do it. And so Jesus turns to the servants and he speaks to them. Now, a note thing I want you to know too that, that Mary, uh, after she brought up the problem to Jesus as a good disciple, she demonstrates something that, as I said, demonstrates trust that Jesus will do it. That she tells the servants immediately after she asks Jesus, do whatever he says. So she already knows that Jesus is going to do something. She doesn't know when or how, but she just says by those words, do whatever my son says, or do whatever he says, indicates that she trusts that Jesus will do something. So in, in doing this miracle, Jesus asked others to participate in it. And this is an important thing to note, that when we invite Jesus to the party, and if he's going to do something active among us, he will definitely use you to participate in his workings. And that's exciting. That is something to, to note and be aware of, that you can be a part of what Jesus will be doing. In verse 7, it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so that they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Why does Jesus want others to participate in his workings? Have you ever wondered about that? Well, in this particular case, I think it's important that he brings in these, these, others, these servants to help him to participate because he needs them to be witnesses to what is about to take place. Because when he asked the servants to bring the water, they're the ones that, they, that there was actually really, truly water that was filled in these, these um, jars. And these jars are ceremonial jars where the guests would come and purify themselves before they entered the home to eat or drink. They, would, they were large clay jars and they had clean water in them and they would take cups of the water and they would pour it over their hands to in some ways ceremonially 
uh, purify themselves for meals. And that was a big thing in the Jewish faith and the Jewish culture. It's not really for hygiene's sake. It was more for a ritual ceremonial cleansing. And, and so Jesus made sure that the servants filled them to the brim. So this way is to make sure that the, the servants understood that there was water in there and there was nothing but water. Because if there was a little bit of room left, and some would say, you know, you could have just poured in some, some extra wine or something to make it look like it was all wine. But they filled it to the brim, according to Jesus' instructions, to make sure that no hanky-panky was going to go on. They'd be full of clean water. And, and when he does this to, to, to empower these servants to, to participate, later they can be witnesses to what he's about to do. And, and why is that? It's because Jesus wants them to be able to tell the story to others. And when we tell stories of Jesus to others... It's called evangelism. That's the way the gospel can be spread, is when we can take the stories that we have seen and experienced and share them with others of what Jesus has done. And that's spreading the gospel. In a, in a next month, we have an opportunity to do that. We call it Serve Sunday. On May 22nd, as part of our expression of worship, we will have uh, teachings and devotionals at these little gatherings. But instead of having worship in the sanctuary, we're going to go into the community and worship through service. And that's an opportunity where we can invite family and friends to participate, where we are going to do some service projects, like go to Harbor House and help them at a yard sale, or go around Lake Merritt and clean the litter that's on the streets or in the grass, uh, or go into... Uh, San Francisco, the city team ministries, and help the homeless there. And it's an opportunity to invite our friends who may not come to church or don't know Jesus, but they can come along and serve alongside us. Just like Jesus asked those servants at the wedding to serve alongside him. And when we go with Jesus to these different parts of the neighborhood and the community, we should go with great anticipation to see what Jesus will be doing among us. And when we see it and feel it and identify it, then we can share those stories among our community with the friends that we bring along. And that's something that's really cool and has, as we've seen, biblical precedent. And that's what's going to happen. And I, I'm sure that's going to happen on May 22nd. So be sure to keep that in mind. Keep prayerfully considering who you want to bring along because that would be a great opportunity for the gospel to be extended. Last week, I believe Pastor Andrew talked about evangelism and, and, and sharing gospel with others. It's a relational thing, but it's a relational thing that's done under a team concept. It's a team effort. Some of us, as Pastor Andrew said, some of us would be like Andrew, more behind the, behind the scenes kind of thing, or more like the disciple Peter, more upfront and more exhorting and, and, and in-your-face kind of methods. I've had those experiences in my, my own life. And um, about a few months ago, I had an opportunity to do a memorial service for a friend, uh, for her father. And the father, to my great delight, 
had made this commitment to follow Jesus. And especially if you know her family. Her family is a Buddhist family. So it's very hard to witness or to evangelize in, in, a, in a family context where most of the family is Buddhist believing. But apparently many years ago she told me that, that uh, she used a tool, that, uh, a gimmick that, that I had um, used. And I, I, I didn't invent it. I borrowed it probably from some other friends that I'd seen it. It's using the game of Jeopardy. And, you know, if you know the game of Jeopardy, there's different categories and there's different money amounts and there's just these answers and you have to pose the question to match the answer. And, and I used it at one of our uh, leadership appreciation gatherings here using categories from CLC's history and about a little uh, trivia about our members' membership. But Terry and I would often use this game for Christmas, because whenever we would host a Christmas gathering for our family who are unchurched, we'd use the Jeopardy game under the guise with Christmas themes. And Christmas is one of the seasons where you kind of can introduce Jesus because Christmas, Christ, is all in there. So even unchurched people can tolerate that, and especially people who are Buddhist. And so my friend used it. She heard it. She loved it, and she used it year after year after year at her Christmas gatherings with her family. So even her hard, hard-nosed, uh, hard-headed Buddhist family members kind of went with the, with the agenda, and, and they actually enjoyed it. Because there's a competitive factor to it, too, because, you know, you can win certain amounts of points, and then you can then um, use it to, to get reimbursed with certain gifts or whatever. But it was a good way to introduce Jesus to her family. And it was then, a year and a half before her father passed away, that he made a commitment to make Jesus his Lord and Savior. And my part, and it was gratifying to know that it started with just using this Jeopardy game. So if you're kind of reticent or you're kind of scared about doing evangelism or sharing the gospel, there are ways of doing it, and you can be just a small part of it. So don't hesitate. And that's part of our, our, our reason we're having this series, right, from the Gospel of John. We're seeing stories from the Gospel of John that demonstrate that any encounter with Jesus, there's an opportunity for transformation, for change. And that's why we call the series Getting Out There. It means taking a risk. It is stepping out of our comfort zones and stop being safe Christians that we would want to share with others something that we feel is so precious. I, I love that, that analogy that Pastor Andrew used last week of the chocolate donut. If it's so good, why just keep it to yourself? You want to share it with others. And that's what the gospel is. It's something that should be shared with others. Jesus is someone we want to invite to our parties. To any time that we have gatherings, or even when you go to your workplace, you have your meetings at school, whatever. Invite Jesus with you. And I think there's something we, we forget to do. We make assumption. Yes, we all know theologically Jesus is always with us. But I think it, it demonstrates a certain amount of trust and obedience that before we, we enter into the world, that we invite Jesus to come along. 
that if we have a gathering for families, if for co-workers, for school friends, take a moment and say, Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, come. I mean, I do that before I go to work. Some of you know I'm a dentist. And there are times in the middle of some difficult procedures where something is not going right. I'm saying, Jesus, come. Because uh, it works. And I have never, it's never failed me when something's not, the bleeding doesn't stop. I can't find that little piece of bone fragment. I find it after I pray. So thankful for my patient. My patient's probably thankful for that. But I'm telling you, do that. Don't think it's trivial. Don't think it's something that, that, that's meaningless. Invite Jesus to your party. And when he's in your party, Jesus will show his power and glory. We will, when he does show his power and glory, we will also enjoy that transformational power in ourselves. And that's what's happening here at the wedding at Cana. On surface, you're just seeing water turning into wine. Big deal. Okay, so you save face, you help this family not be embarrassed, but essentially it's just water to wine. But that's an amazing thing because for those servants who saw this and Mary who trusted to see this happen and also Jesus' disciples, they're the ones who actually know what's going on. When they see this, they are amazed that an amazing amount of power to transform was able to happen at that moment. And that is something that is critical for our faith today, too, to be able to see those things happen. Now, if you know anything about John, who is the author of the Gospel of John, he's kind of not uh, what we call a, a left-brain kind of guy. He's a right-brain guy. He's an artist. He's into images. He's not into data, facts, and, and things. He likes images. And he's about relationships. He's a touchy-feely guy, right? And so here, for this story for one that he wants to present, which may be not even chronologically correct, not even um, shows up in all the other Gospels, but he chooses this one as the first thing that Jesus does in his ministry and is the changing of water to wine. Why? Why wine? I mean, wine apparently is a very powerful image. To the Jewish people, it meant a lot. It represented the goodness of God. And it's not just a little bit of goodness. It's an abundance of goodness. So for the Jewish people, if they recognize what was going on here, because there is nothing wrong with water. I mean, water gives life, but it was turned into wine, which for them represented the goodness of God, an abundance of goodness. Now, actually, I want, um, I need someone, and I think there's Patrick. Can you come up here for me? I need someone that's a volunteer who's over 21 who can actually drink wine. <laughs> so, I, you know, John picked wine. And... And for Jewish people, it meant a lot. And I think for Patrick, it probably means a lot too. 
So we're doing this under the guise that I'm presenting communion to him, so it's okay. So I know Patrick enjoys wine. And so when you have a glass, what do you first do? I, I smell it. I look at it. Uh-huh. And why do you do that? To fully appreciate and use all of my senses. Yeah. Wine, the reason wine is so enjoyable, and, and the Jewish people understood this, is that it, it, it's, it's enjoyable because it's complex. If you smell it and you taste it, there's a complexity to it. And the more complexity that's in it, it, it it's more valuable. It's more appreciated. And I understand, I, well, I had to do a little research because I'm an amateur at this, but the cost of the wine doesn't matter. That's actually a more of a marketing and, and cost factor. Good wine is good wine. It's, even though it could be only a $10 bottle versus a $100 bottle, a lot of it is because of just supply and demand. And doesn't mean necessarily that the wine is really good. But what makes wine is good is what the color, the clarity, the, the uh, smell, and, the, and, and that's why you smell it and you taste it. So go ahead and tell me what you smell and what you taste. Good. <laughs> so, <laughs> you want more? <laughs> <laughs> you can actually take it with you. <laughs> Enjoy it at your seat if you want. Okay. okay. Thank you. So, what I'm essentially showing here is that there is this process of enjoying it. And, and, and wine, if the simple fact, the miracle that Jesus presents, if you ever know anything in the process of making wine, just taking from one to one is actually a miracle in itself. The processed wine takes a lot of water. It, it takes a lot of water to make one bottle of, 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 of wine. It doesn't, it's not a one-to-one thing. So even that in an efficiency and ability to do a one-to-one, that's a miracle in itself. So when the servants saw this, this was amazing to them. And also it was that representation that this is a meaningful to them about the blessing and prosperity that God gives them. They're amazed. Because Jesus chose the lowly to, to experience this and know this. He picked the servants at the wedding. His mother, who is a woman, who is not very uh, respected in, in Jewish culture, Men are, not women. She knows. And Jesus' disciples, who were not the bigwigs of, of culture and society, they're just poor fishermen and farmers, and they understand. And the reason they were chosen is because this is great news to them. That they are witnessing an amazing power that is transforming and it's demonstrated in the water to wine. I want to read something from a book by Andy Crouch about playing God. And, and there's a wonderful uh, words that he writes in his book about this miracle and about the glory that is revealed through this transformation of water to wine. Andy Crouch writes, What does it mean to say that this miracle reveals Jesus' glory? He is not transfigured into a figure of dazzling brilliance. He never becomes the center of attention, continuing to recline at the outskirts of the newly revived feast. 
Rather, the glory revealed here is Jesus' true identity, the magnificence of true being. What is revealed for the first time at Cana is the ultimate truth of his mission, to make all things new, to bring all things to the glory for which they were made. Just as a glorious glass of wine is one that is truly, deeply, completely itself, so this miracle shows the disciples and servants what Jesus is truly like. Not just a good teacher, but the restorer of all life. Not just a dutiful son, but the perfectly obedient son of the Father. Not just a fixer of our little cares and problems, but the one who provides the best wine just when we would expect the worst. True power reveals glory, unfolding the abundant possibilities and realities of created things. And this revelation of glory happens at a wedding. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, does this amazing miracle. And it's amazing. And to the people seeing this, it is good news. How about yourselves? Is this good news for yourself? Because we get a hint of why this is so good. In the verses it says, in verse 10, he, Jesus called the, bride, or the master of the banquet, called by, uh, the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Saving the best till now. Our God is saying essentially to the servants, to Mary, to the disciples, and to all of us that the best is yet to come. We have a God that loves us so much that he will give us abundantly, just as the wine is a symbol of that. That this passage began with the words, on the third day. Where have you heard on the third day before? It's a reference to the resurrection. On the third day, after Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, on the third day, a miracle happened. He rose from the dead. And that is great hope. And so at this wedding, Jesus is being prophetic. He's telling the people, I am your Christ. And on the third day, I will rise again for you. So he's telling the people, no matter how much you're suffering, no matter how tough life is, no matter how much shame or embarrassment you are bearing, on the third day, the best will come. And so when those people saw that, they were inspired that God is looking out for them, that this blip of misery and suffering cannot compare to the abundance and goodness of an eternity with God. And we should rejoice in that fact. We should be uh, joyful of that. And if you're not, I, 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 I encourage you to press into Jesus and allow him to transform you so that you can enjoy the fullness of life that Jesus offers. 
So let's pray. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. You are healer and awesome in power. If you are with us, then what could stand against us? We invite you to the party. We invite you into our lives. And may your glory shine forever. Amen.